Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where as always, we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather, and today we're going to go over the timeline of Chris's actions on the 13th after burying his wife in that shallow grave and shoving his two little girls into separate oil tanks on his work site. According to him, he was simply working until he got a notification from his door that Nicole was at his house. But let's talk about what he really did after taking the lives of his entire family. For those of you who already know the contents of his second confession, note that we're basing the times of death on his first confession at this point. We have a lot of evidence to go over before we discuss his second confession and whether or not we believe it. Small talk is for the birds, so let's dive in. Chris leaves his house at 5.48 in the morning with his dead wife and two little girls piled into the back seat of his work truck. The truck had a tiny extended cab, so while there was room for them back there, dead weight is so much heavier than lifting someone who's in control of their movements, so not only would putting them into the truck be incredibly hard, it would have been hard to place them nicely. They were likely literally thrown, shoved, and piled up next to and on top of one another. From 629 to 630, Chris calls his coworker Roberts three times. These calls go unanswered, and he is desperate, so he texts Roberts at 6.31 a.m. asking him where he is. One minute later, Roberts tells Chris that he just got gas in Kersey, which puts him about an hour away. Chris called Roberts again, and again he didn't answer. Chris texts Roberts at 6.33 a.m. saying he's at Survey 319 and asked where he plans to go first. He tells Chris that he's going to DPC State, and Chris responds with a thumbs-up emoji. This guy is using emojis while he's driving around with three dead family members in the back of his pickup truck. This was Chris's first attempt to gauge how much time he had to get rid of the girl's bodies, making sure no one is going to walk up on him digging Shanann's grave. At 6.38 a.m., Roberts tells Chris that Chad may be heading to Survey that day, and a single minute later, Chris calls Chad. Chad doesn't answer, which I'm sure had Chris shaking in his booties. At 6.41, as he's pulling into the worksite, he texts Chad asking if he's coming to Servi. Chad confirms that he will be heading that way in a bit, and Chris relays this message to Roberts. This is where I think Chris changes his mind about burying the girls and instead decides to put them in the tanks. It took him about a half an hour to dig Shanann's grave, so he wouldn't have had time to dig two more. 
Chris gets to the work site, Survey 319, at 6.41 a.m. and parks by the wheelhead, which is way farther away from the tanks than he usually parks. Instead of parking near the tanks he was there to fix, he parked in the field quite a ways back. I mean, the less far you have to drag the dead body of your wife, the better when it comes to not getting caught by your coworkers, right? I can't. At 7.18 a.m., Chris takes a photo of his laptop screen in his work truck. It was a super poor quality, and when police tried to enlarge it, they couldn't make out what it said, and this could totally be irrelevant to anything, but it happened, so we're covering it. At 7.40, Chris texted Shanann right after burying her body, saying that if she was going to take the girls somewhere to let him know where they were at. She'll get right on that. He is already setting the stage so he can play concerned husband when shit hits the fan. At 8.25, Chris calls his dead wife's phone, knowing it would go to voicemail in the ass crack of the loft couch. As soon as he hangs up with a ghost phone, he Googles the girl's school, Primrose School of Erie at Vista Ridge. Clearly, he's never called them before. Chris dials their number and tells them that they won't be attending anymore because they're going to be selling their house and moving out of the district. But then he catches himself, knowing that this call is probably going to become evidence at some point, and Chris quickly changes his direction and asks, The girls aren't there, are they? Obviously, they were not. Bella and Celeste's outfits had been picked out long before their first day of school, but they never made it there. Chris is described as always looking put together when it came to work. He had even recently splurged on some new boots that he was super proud of. But when Chris's coworkers see him on the 13th, they say that he was wearing his old boots and not the new ones he'd been showing off. They also say that his pants were actually tucked into those old jankety boots. Adding insult to slobbery, he was also wearing an old baggy shirt instead of one of his newer ones. A few of his co-workers made comments about his outfit because it was just so out of character, and Chris came back saying that all of a sudden he was afraid of snakes and legless lizards. I googled what the fuck that is, and God bless anyone who's around me if a legless lizard ever touches me. Continuing. Chris didn't want to ruin any of his clothes when he was killing or disposing of his family. Unless he killed everyone in his pajamas, Chris got dressed knowing what he was planning to do. I know that when I replace something, I either get rid of the old one or put them away somewhere just in case. Like these black pair of flats I get every year from Target. They're part of the basic pumpkin spice package. Seriously, 70% of women listening to this are going to know exactly what I'm talking about and probably have them in more than one color. Chris put on an old pair of work boots and I can't help but assume that this probably took some forethought. They also noted that he was super OCD about cleanliness. Again, this is why the sloppy look caused so much side eye. But they say he actually spilled some oil that morning and instead of cleaning up, he just left it there. A coworker mentions that at one point in the morning while at Survey 319, Chris just stared blankly into the field south of the pad in the direction of his truck like he was just frozen or something. He was staring into the field at his wife's 18-inch grave, but his coworker didn't know that at the time. At 8 a.m., Chris complained that he was hot, but according to others at the site with him, it wasn't even warm yet. To sum it up, this isn't one of those times where coworkers were like, everything was normal, I had no idea anything was up. 
Chris dressed weird, he acted weird, and everyone noticed. Chris stayed at Survey 319 until 8.40 a.m. At 9.05 a.m., Chris calls the realtor, Ann Meadows. He talked with her about his options regarding the sale of their house. You know, just killed the family, probably need to sell the house. My brain is going to explode. At 10.10 a.m., Chris Googles the lyrics to Metallica's song, Battery, which includes the phrases, Lunacy has found me. Weak are ripped and torn away. Cannot kill the family. Crushing all deceivers. Hungry violence seeker. Feeding off the weaker. Breeding on insanity. And pounding out aggression. Let that sink in. This was a song that Chris knew well. It wasn't like he needed clarification on something. He was a huge Metallica fan and had been to their concert in Denver in June of 2017. Chris wasn't looking this up to answer a question. He was looking it up to read and reminisce over what he had done that morning. At 10.28 a.m., Shanann's mom texts Chris asking if Shanann's okay. Chris calls her and she doesn't answer. She called him back and they talked for a minute. At 10.42 a.m., Chris calls a resort in Aspen and talks to them for two minutes. Chris and Shanann had planned a trip to Aspen that weekend as kind of a last-ditch effort. Shanann had suggested it while she was gone, and he agreed to go. So she booked it at a fancy resort. I believe he was looking up which hotel Shanann had booked so that he could cancel the reservation. He wound up searching the internet for Groupon's contact information, so I'm guessing he was told that he had to cancel through Groupon and had no idea what he was doing. Before he even knew the girls were missing, he is canceling the trip that they had planned for just a few days later. At 10.51 a.m., Chris called Shanann's mom again and spoke for one more minute. At 12.16 p.m., a friend Josh texts Chris saying that Cassie and Nikki still hadn't heard from Shanann and wanted to know if he had. As Chris was receiving this text, he was taking photos of flowers in an open area he was working at. Since him and his mistress started their affair, Chris would often send photos of flowers he passed during the day. It was kind of their thing. While friends and family are texting and calling him concerned about his missing wife and children, Chris is continuing his sweet nothings with his mistress. Two minutes later, he called Nicole and told her that Shanann was going to a friend's house with the kids. He then texts Josh back, telling him exactly what he had just told Nicole and that he'd update him, and Josh told him that the girls were worried. Everyone was worried. Everyone except for Chris. At 12.27 a.m., Chris called Nikki again. While he was on the phone with her, the realtor texted him asking about any upgrades that they had done to their house because she was working on their market analysis. She specifically asked if they had finished their basement. At 12.31, Shanann's friend Addie texted Chris asking if Shanann was okay because it wasn't like her to not respond. It's literally been half a day. I've got to either one, get some more friends, or two, respond to people like a grown-up. This woman had a football team of girlfriends worried about her well-being after like four hours of wake time. 
I think we can also take this time to acknowledge how likable of a person Shanann had to be to have this many close friends. At 12.41 p.m., Chris called Nicole again. Two minutes later, Cassie texts Chris that Shanann isn't doing well and she knows that they've been having issues. Cassie says that she's never seen Shanann so broken and that she's worried about her. Chris tells Cassie that Shanann went to a friend's house with the kids but won't tell him where, but that he'll update her when he gets home. Cassie texts him again, saying that the only people who know anything about their marital problems is her and Nicole, and asks who she would go to if not one of them, not to mention that her car and shoes were still at the house, and her tone was more of a riddle me that than what's going on. Chris tells her that Nicole knows about their problems because he had just told her about it so she would stop freaking out at his house. Um, no, Nicole knew because Shanann had told her. He says he thinks Christina knows too. Okay, and... Is she there? If not, why are we going through this list? Chris keeps flapping on that he told Shanann last night that he wanted to sell the house and get something smaller. He tells Cassie that he thinks a separation would be best right now if they can't work through their issues and says he doesn't want her to think he's a bad person. Remember, he's telling her this just hours after murdering his entire family. She is for sure about to think less of him. But Cassie tells him that she doesn't care about him or his relationship or what kind of person he is, that she's only worried about his damn wife and her well-being, and that unless he wanted the cops to bust down his damn door, he needed to get home and check on his family. That is my girl. You go, Cassie. While he's texting Cassie that he and Shanann were selling the house to downsize, he's texting and the realtor that the basement is still unfinished and that they haven't done any other upgrades. Also, that he can sell the house that he will reap all the financial benefits from. At 1.05 p.m., Chris texts Cassie that he's going home and tells her not to call the police, that he would be there in 45 minutes. If you ever tell me not to call the police, the first thing I'm going to do is call the police. At 1.14 p.m., as he's on his way home, Anne, the realtor, asked if he preferred a three-car garage. And Chris told her, three-car garage, I'll drive by the 6508 address when I get home. He's literally taking a detour on the way home to check on his reportedly missing family to look at a house for his realtor. If Chris had a pocket full of fucks, he's not so much as sparing a single one for his missing, well, murdered family. At 2.10 p.m., Christina, a friend of Shanann's, texts Chris asking where he is and what's going on, so clearly her friends are talking to one another about how Chris took so long to give a rat's ass. Christina says, we are so worried, what the fuck? He texts her back 16 minutes later saying that the police were there and that he would call her when he knew. At 2.11 p.m., Chris sent a bullshit text to the wife he murdered six hours before asking where she was. This would have been right before he magically found her phone in the ass crack of that couch in their loft. Three minutes later, Shanann's phone is turned on. What did I tell you? He texts Kessinger, his mistress, at 3.45 p.m. saying to call him. A single minute later at 3.46 p.m., Shanann's friend Addie texts Chris again looking for an update, saying that she was so worried and Chris called and talked to her for six minutes. While on the phone with Chris... Addie is texting the group message that Shanann and all of her friends shared that police needed to look at Chris's cell and computer. Everyone already suspects that Chris had something to do with whatever happened. At 4 p.m., Kessinger returns a call to Chris. During this phone call, he asked her how much he thought Shanann's wedding rings were worth, 
and Kessinger told him to pawn them. This is the point at which I was totally and completely unwavering in my feeling that everything Kessinger told the police was a lie. She wasn't disgusted in Chris. She wasn't scared. She knew Shanann wasn't coming home. She told him to pawn her wedding rings. Shanann's friend, Kelly Burke, asked Chris at 4.22 p.m. what the police were saying, and Chris told her that they were going to file a missing persons report if they didn't hear anything from them by the morning, which is total crap. Police were putting out alerts on the girls as soon as they physically could get them out. She then asked him if Shanann was awake when he left for work that morning, and he told her that they had talked between 4 and 5 a.m., and that he thinks she just went back to sleep afterward. But she was definitely still there when he left, and the kids were still sleeping. If lies set pants on fire, Chris would be naked. At 5.01 p.m., Kessinger called Chris two times. He didn't answer, and she deleted those calls from her phone history. This is also the first time I see Kessinger call his personal cell phone, the day he murders his family. All of their other communications had been done via his work phone from as far as I can see. At 5.05 p.m., Chris called Chase Bank and spoke with them about the last charges on their account, appeasing the officer who suggested he do this. There was nothing good, just a charge for a taxi from when she was on her trip. 25 minutes later, he got some time alone away from all the police activity and made a call to his mistress. She didn't answer. He also deleted this phone call from his records. Note here that both start deleting one another's communications. It's not just Nikki deleting them. It's not just Chris deleting them. Both of them are. This was a plan that they had clearly gone over. At 5.48 p.m., Anne the realtor asked Chris if he had driven by the 6508 model. She had no idea what was going on yet, so hold off on the judgment. Chris happily responds, Just did. Yep, that's the exact model. The only time Chris had driven since speaking to her earlier was on his way home from work. Chris literally ran a realty errand before coming home to let police in to check for his wife and children. At the request of others, Chris googled local hospitals at 6 p.m. He called four different hospitals in four minutes, then told everyone that no one had any record of Shanann or the girls. The average length of his conversations with the hospitals were 40 seconds each. So police did a little test run and contacted the exact same hospitals asking for a specific patient each time, and it took them two minutes to get an answer. Police suspect that Chris simply dialed the numbers, let them ring, and then hung up. At 6.23 p.m., Kelly Burke checks in again asking about the hospitals, and Chris said he had no luck locating them at all. This is so painful to watch happen back in Rewind. Knowing what was going on behind the scenes while everyone but Chris was frantically trying to find his missing family is enough to make anyone big mad. At 6.30 p.m., even Anne the realtor is curious at this point what's going on since Shanann hasn't said a word, and she had always talked to Shanann in the past, not Chris. Chris told her, she hasn't been around all day. It's very odd. He didn't mention that she was missing. He didn't say anything about the massive police presence at his house and in his neighborhood and forgot to add that his children have up and vanished. Nothing. To him, it was just very odd. Notice how he's changing his personality and level of concern based on who he's talking to and how much they know about the situation. At 6.52 p.m., Chris messages their very concerned friend Sam that he is praying so hard he's sick to his stomach that police searched the whole house high and low and had drilled him pretty hard, but Chris tells them he has no idea where the girls could be. Sam was confused at why the police would be drilling Chris, and Chris said, 
they got to do all the digging they can. The creepy foreshadowing here burns my soul. Chris then told Sam not to get on a plane because he already had plenty of support at home. At 11.09 p.m., Kessinger called Chris and they talked on the phone for 51 freaking minutes. And of course, she deleted this call from her phone history. I would love to do an episode of all the conversations I feel like they could have been having. You know, mistress to family annihilator. The two hang up at midnight, so it's now technically August 14th. Two minutes after getting off the phone with Chris, Kessinger Googles his dead wife, Shanann Watts. You don't have the right. You don't deserve to Google her. At 12.07 a.m., Chris is still awake and makes a call to Kessinger that goes to voicemail, but she calls him right back and they talk for another 10 minutes. Again, would love to be a fly on the wall for this. Between 4.58 a.m. and 7.26 a.m., Shanann's mom and Sam both call Chris. He tells Sam that he hopes Shanann is just with someone he doesn't know about, that he's optimistic they'll reunite again. At 9.29 a.m. on the 14th, Chris forgets that he forgot to add one of Kessinger's nudie pictures to his secret calculator app that he keeps them all in, so he goes ahead and transfers one of her naked selfies into his stash. At 12.08 p.m. on the 14th, Kessinger starts a four-hour search about Shanann's disappearance. Now, when you Google something like a missing person, you probably read a few articles, let your jaw drop, and then call some friends. Unless you're me, and she's not, so whatever. But she spent four hours checking every detail she could find. Was she curious or was she worried? Was she upset or was she making sure they didn't know something? Kessinger deleted all of her searches about Shanann from her phone history. At 5 p.m., Kessinger Googles, can cops trace text messages? How long do phone companies keep text messages? And difference between text message content and text message detail. The answers are yes, forever, and don't matter got caught. Per usual, she deleted all of these searches. At 6.21 p.m., Nikki does yet another binge search of Shanann and her disappearance. And as she does with all Shanann binges, she deleted this from her phone's history. Everyone would expect an innocent mistress to be mortified and terrified and curious. So why is she deleting everything? People delete things that they want to hide, and people hide things that they're afraid of. So what is she so afraid of people finding out? Now, this was hard to fit in where it chronologically belonged, but it deserves a spot in this because it is pure gold. When those calls started coming in in the late morning, Chris actually told co-workers that he needed to go poop. Nervous Tummy is real, and he drove his truck to the south side of the tanks at Survey 1029 and did his business alone in the grass. After finding out what happened, they naturally thought that Chris was burying evidence at a second site, so they sent someone out to investigate. But for real, for real, all they found was human poop, and I feel really bad for whoever did this evidence sweep. It was a real crapshoot. And that's where I leave you today. Okay, next week's episode, we're going to dig into the months leading up to the murders. Maybe their relationship wasn't as perfect as it seems, and maybe Chris got in so deep that he just couldn't get out. But you'll find out more then. 
If you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends, subscribe, leave a review, all the good stuff. And if you get true crime fever in between episodes, be sure to check out my Instagram at the Heather Ashley, where I do many cases every Thursday. Until then, we out. Mm-hmm.